Welcome to the Proceedings Podcast. I'm Ward Carroll, the Naval Institute's Director of Outreach. Joining me is my usual co-host, retired Navy Captain Bill Hamlet, the Editor-in-Chief of Proceedings Magazine. Hello, Bill. Hello, Ward. We have an exceptionally special guest today. We do. A guy who uh, harkens back to the heyday of my life as a J.O. And mine. Yeah. yeah. And uh, so uh, it's, it's... And mine. And, and his. <laughs> so this is, uh, it's like a conversation among friends. Um, we'll be talking about his latest effort called Oceans Ventured, Winning the Cold War at Sea. Um, so without any further ado, Bill, why don't we, uh, why don't we introduce our guest? Yeah, so uh, many of our guests may have already guessed that um, uh, our podcast guest today is the Honorable John Lehman, who was the Secretary of the Navy from 1981 to 1987 uh, under President Ronald Reagan, and uh, many credit him and, and his colleagues for coming up with the Cold War maritime strategy that was a forward strategy that put the U.S. Navy uh, and the Allies uh, on the periphery, uh, close periphery of the Soviet Union. So, Mr. Secretary, welcome to the Proceedings Podcast. Thanks. It's great to be uh, to be on such a, a notable program. Oh, ooh. well, thank right. you, thank you. We're going to so, use that in, in collateral <laughs> going forward. Uh, um, <laughs> I, I'll, I'd like to start off with one thing, which was uh, as I was uh, doing a little research and rereading your book, um, it, it occurred to me that you were 38 years old when you became the Secretary of the Navy. So, how, how did that happen? <laughs> well, uh, it, it's, um, you know, hard work and due diligence and so forth, but a lot of good luck uh, of running uh, and, and being involved with some first-rate people. Uh, in this book, I, I dedicate it to my sea daddies, and without those sea daddies, uh, I, I, I would not have been able to, uh, uh, to, to really lead the Navy at the time that, uh, that was so... Uh, Critical uh, with uh, with the uh, possibility of ending the Cold War with a leader like Ronald Reagan. So those uh, you know uh, uh, those sea daddies were uh, just uh, crucial. Starting with my dad, who was uh, an LCS skipper. Uh, yes, there was an LCS in World War II uh, in the, in the Pacific and was in combat uh, all over the Pacific and and. Uh, uh, came back and uh, uh, stayed in the reserves, but uh, he 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 always uh, inspired me. You know, I, I I always looked up to him and wanted to be a naval officer. Uh, and then, particularly, he used to take me up to. Uh, we lived right near Willow Grove Naval Air Station, so he'd take me up there periodically for lunch at the officers' club, and I would see these living gods, flying corsairs with. Uh, leather jackets and uh, uh, a, a kind of swagger that I just thought was just uh, uh, unbelievable, and I uh, I was determined I would one day be one of them. Yeah, that's that's, then, the, that's the kind of swagger that Ward Carroll walks around the, the uh, Naval Institute offices with. Uh, right. I hope he, I hope he's still in his brown shoes. By the way, yeah, no, thank you for those. Uh, that that was very much a, a layman signature move uh, in in my first tour. We got back from my first cruise on Indy, and uh, we all were. You had done that uh, while we were at sea, uh, so we were unable to get him. But as soon as we got back, uh, we all went to the Navy Exchange and got our brown shoes. That, as you know. Uh, that that really did a lot for morale and continues to do a lot for morale. And I think people may forget that you were the guy behind that uh, that ruling. 
Um, among your other sea daddies are, are pretty notable names like Arlie Burke and uh, Secretary Warner, Buzz Zumwalt, uh, Admiral Holloway. Um, but what I like, just like with On Seas of Glory, you have this way of telling history that is is very tight. Um, so let's let's dive right into the what led up to the Cold War that people maybe forget in history. Um, can you can you set that up for us? Uh, uh, go as far back in the Navy's history as you want, but uh, I think the book is very brilliant in this way in, in terms of teeing up what got us to uh, the beginning of uh, the Cold War on your watch. Well, you know, the Navy, uh, what what we did, and really uh, uh, President Reagan was instinctively kind of a naval person, though he never served. He really under he really had a feel for the dynamics of, of world politics and geopolitics. And so when, uh, uh, when we had the chance to really uh, uh, take him to school on, on the, uh, uh, the, the, the way that he could use the Navy and the Air Force and the other services, but to maximize the strength that we had inherently uh, in our naval power, and that drew on the historic tradition of the Navy from John Paul Jones' time uh, that offense is the only defense. And unfortunately, after World War II, that offensive nature of, of naval power in the United States uh, that had really ruled through, through its history, culminating in the Great Pacific War and World War II, had uh, been relegated... Uh, by a, 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 a whole series of circumstances, particularly the Vietnam War and then uh, the post-war uh, letdown and then the, uh, uh, the Watergate uh, scandal, had pushed the Navy into, a, into a, a, almost a passive role. In, in NATO strategy, uh, the Navy had become... Uh, simply the truck drivers to get the beans and bullets across the Atlantic if the Soviets attacked on the Central Front. And that was most unfortunate because in, in the Cold War, the balance was, on the one hand, the Warsaw Pact and the Soviet Union, which was a land power with, with most of its territory north of the 50th parallel, which was the worst agricultural land in, in the world. They had uh, virtually no warm water ports to speak of, and they were surrounded by uh, the world's great naval powers, and uh, 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 most importantly, the United States. And all of that uh, was ignored. With a uh, NATO became increasingly uh, obsessed by the Central Front and the land balance, which was inherently. Uh, uh, very threatening uh, uh, to uh, to the United States and uh, uh, NATO powers because the Soviets were able, the Warsaw Pact was able to maintain 180 active divisions in the, along the the the, uh, uh, the Iron Curtain, if you will, and the North German Plain, the Fulda Gap, and so forth, to a maximum of 40 uh, divisions that NATO was ever able to to mobilize. And so there was a kind of a defeatism that was beginning to pervade NATO. And so uh, the answer to that was 
uh, well, we've really got to negotiate. And uh, uh, after all, we've, we've got to make concessions. And uh, uh, and so a pursuit of detente kind of replaced the, the uh, uh, robust, uh, containment that had characterized most of, of NATO post-war strategy. Well, there were many of us, of course, I would say most of the naval leaders of that period, <coughs> including those that you just mentioned, thought this was really, uh, this is nonsensical because here, here we command, we had the potential to command the seas, and there was no way the Warsaw Pact could deal with that that we had the ability uh, to threaten their most strategic uh, 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 assets, their SSBNs and, and their bases, their land bases, and we could penetrate from, uh, from the carriers uh, uh, around the periphery in the Med, in the, in the uh, Atlantic, in the, in the Norwegian Sea, the Barents Sea, the, Bar- uh, the, the Bering Sea, uh, could threaten their most vital uh, uh, territory, which was a very good counterbalance to uh, to their uh, superiority on land, and would should be able to clearly deter and and uh, uh, and and block their ability to attack in NATO. So President Reagan totally uh, agreed with that view, and the Navy provided. Uh, him with a strategy that could be applied right away. He campaigned on it, the 600-ship Navy and the forward strategy, and the Navy provided him with an option in Ocean Venture to immediately implement that strategy in a dramatic way that would make it clear to the Soviet Union that it wasn't some political pie in the sky that he had campaigned on. It was real and it could be and would be mobilized uh, just uh, seven months after his inauguration, when for the first time in 20 years, the major fleets of NATO went north of the GI-UK gap, the Greenland, Iceland, United Kingdom uh, line went up into the Norwegian Sea and proved that they could operate up there and that they could threaten and uh, and. Uh, uh, run uh, uh, practice strikes, if you will, right up to their border, and there was nothing they can do. They could do with it, uh, do about it, rather. And so that created a, a huge change in what the Soviets uh, call the uh, correlation of forces, and they could see that uh, uh, they, they couldn't stop uh, what NATO was doing with this forward naval strategy. And uh, that led to them demanding, the, the, the general staff, the Soviet general staff, demanding a trebling of the northern fleets and air forces budgets, which then uh, made clear to the Politburo that uh, they were bankrupting the, the country and that with the collapse in oil price and uh, the, te- the problems of Chernobyl and and uh, the restedness of, of the uh, captive nations that uh, this, this could not be sustained. And so that was a major factor, along with uh, Star Wars and, uh, uh, and other initiatives that, uh, that uh, uh, the administration and NATO uh, pressed 
simultaneously. That really was uh, the the beginning of the end of the Cold War. And as Reagan said in 77 when he announced he was going to run for president, and when asked what his Cold War strategy would be, he said it's straightforward. We win, they lose. And that's what he did. Sir, uh, your book is called Ocean's Venture, which is a play on that uh, NATO exercise, Ocean Venture, 1981, which took place in the summer of 81. So you became the Secretary of the Navy. You sworn in on February 5th, 1981. Uh, and you know, six, seven months later, there's this major first time ever, as you said, NATO exercise above the GI-UK gap. How did you pull together an exercise of that scale and scope with that many allies that quickly? Well, that's, it's really an interesting uh, story because um, there, there was almost every year a major NATO exercise. Uh, so that had been planned in advance. The ocean venture had already been planned, but it was not allowed under the NATO uh, rules to go north of the GIUK gap. For 20 years, we had not been able to hold an, ex- an exercise north of the GIUK gap. There were individual carrier groups that went up there. There were other other uh, 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 surface groups that went up, but never a full-scale exercise. So we had the ships. Uh, we had them all planning to be, uh, to be in place for this exercise in August, and it was Ace Lyons uh, who uh, uh, was appointed as a strike fleet commander who had pulled together the strategy and it had been planned up at the Naval War College in, in advance. And, uh, uh, and so it, it was uh, all, it, uh, it, all that it needed really was the, uh, uh, the, the decision by the president to do it. And uh, that's, what, that's what took guts because it was... Uh, it, it, the reason there hadn't been any big exercises up there was because uh, in this uh, kind of defensive crouch that NATO had gotten into, it was thought that such a move would be so provocative to the Soviets that they would stop negotiating and uh, uh, would be too upset by by this dramatic uh, change in in uh, what they would see as aggressive posture by the United States. So uh, so uh, the president was knew that this would be controversial, and uh, we, we gave him a certain caveat. He said, look, uh, we want to do this, but we don't want it to leak before, before they go up there because that will create a furor in the media. And uh, so we said, yes, uh, and we can't, uh, really put it into the JCS process because with uh, with uh, that vast bureaucracy of the JCS, it uh, it will be very controversial, and they'll require uh, uh, a couple of years of study before uh, anything is is approved. So, Mr. President, you just have to let the Navy and the Air Force do this. Uh, it's already planned. It doesn't need any clearance. And uh, uh, he said, uh, "Okay." And he said, "But won't it uh, won't it leak from NATO?" And uh, he said, "Well, uh, the European navies and the Royal Navy 
they don't tell their ministries what they're doing anyway, and nobody, nobody really uh, in in the NATO headquarters understands what navies do. A lot of them think that uh, naval ships are solid, not hollow, so they they don't pay any attention to what they're doing. So he liked that, and uh, uh, he approved the exercise. And of course, we did we we, we refined those exercises. Uh, a few months later, we did the first one in the North Pacific, and the uh, NORPAC exercise did the same thing uh, around Vladivostok and Petropavlovsk in the Northern Pacific, and uh, we did uh, similar exercises in the southern flank and eastern Mediterranean, and we did them every year from, uh, uh, from 1981 through uh, 1986. So, reading Ocean's Ventures was sort of like old home week with respect to the names like Clexton and Moz and, and Lyons. And, and I'm reminded of the capability that we had then. When you look at the diagram on page 68 of Ocean Venture, um, you know, we have uh, Ike Battle Group and Forrestal Battle Group. And I thought it was an interesting comment where you quoted the skipper of Forrestal, where his primary concern is how slick the flight deck was. Um, he, he wasn't really concerned about the, the sort of macro strategic piece. He was more concerned with the keeping yellow gear and airplanes on the flight deck part. Um, and I can relate because a few years later in 92, I was on Ike when when we were exiting the Met and we turned right and we did a, 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 another northern exercise. Um, I think by that time you had hamstrung the Soviet Union. In fact, it didn't even exist anymore. And ironically, or... Uh, notably, there were no no Soviet airplanes or Russian airplanes that reacted to our presence, and we were pretty far north and in the fjords and all that sort of thing. So, uh, you can easily say mission accomplished. Uh, you know, in this time frame that's discussed in the book. But I'm I I want to not get ahead and talk about sort of the modern things because we want to get your opinion about the new peer threat and uh, modern capabilities. But you know. Obviously, as a Tomcat guy, I, I have a warm spot in my heart for the capability of that airplane. But beyond that, the way that we use the carrier battle groups to, to in terms of forward presence, right? 500-mile chainsaw uh, evolutions, things that, uh, that are – I don't even think they're on the, the, the playbook anymore, you know? Um, so this diagram – on page 68 very much outlines what we're talking about. And this is almost an era gone by in terms of capability. Well, it doesn't have to be. That's a really good point. It shouldn't be because we have that capability. Uh, alas, unfortunately, we don't have the F-14 capability and we don't have the Phoenix missile capability. Uh, but, uh, but we can compensate for that if we get back in the game with a strategy. And I think we're, we are for first time in a long time, we have a, uh, a CNO and a secretary of the Navy who think strategically and who are uh, 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 now uh, involved in reestablishing a clear, coherent strategy to use the resources we have. Now, obviously, uh, we had 594 ships at the end of the Reagan uh, era. Uh, today we ha- we have, I think, today it's 286 ships, but who's counting? And how many uh, aircraft carriers did we have? Remind the audience. Like 15, 15 aircraft carriers operational. Today we have nine. 
so it limits where we can go, and 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 unfortunately, that's where uh, where some of the reforms of the post Reagan era uh, have really created problems. In that, uh, it is the uh, COCOMs, the co- theater commanders, that have the power to say where the ships go, uh, and. Uh, Many of them are still acting as if we have a 600-ship Navy. And so that's been a, a major source of why uh, we've been having such problems. And they uh, haven't had time to train the ships to terribly mix a metaphor. We're running our ships into the ground uh, by back-to-back deployments. They don't get enough maintenance. They're deploying without fully up uh, uh, combat capability and they're starting to drive a lot of the experienced uh, ratings and officers out of the Navy because of the time they're having to spend uh, deployed. And even though major steps are being taken by the Secretary of Defense, Secretary of the Navy, to uh, uh, to do more imaginative uh, deployment cycles instead of the, the you know requiring these carriers to stay out there nine months. Uh, come back and uh, take too little time to work to rebuild the crew and work up, and uh, they have to go back out with a less than ready capability. They are now; they recognize that. And there, there was a period I think a few months ago when uh, there were no no U.S. carriers deployed. Well, that was the right thing to do. Obviously, it hurts our ability to deter, but you can't have it both ways. You cannot. The Navy cannot continue to say we can do more with less. We can do less with less. And so we're going to have to, until we rebuild the fleet, and by the way, that's very much underway because uh, we've we've gone up quickly from 270 uh, in just the last year up to uh, 286. So there are many imaginative things we can do, reactivating certain ships, speeding up uh, uh, some of the um, construction, using much more disciplined uh, uh, competition and so forth. So we can get to 355 ships, uh, but we can have the capability and uh, 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 to, to do what we need to do. This, the Soviet Union, remember, uh, John McCain used to say that it's, it's really, the Soviet Union was a very powerful uh, power. Today, Russia is a shadow of that power. Uh, they are a gas station uh, with an economy the size of Denmark. Uh, they're a little bigger than that now, but that's what John always used to uh, used to say. They're more like uh, the si- an economy the size of New York State. Uh, they're a fraction of what the American economic power is. Uh, but they they have concentrated on it uh, uh, on putting it putting their resources where they think the, the the greatest payoff against the greatest American vulnerabilities are, and that's in ASW. And uh, their new submarines are very very quiet. Uh, there we have, as you know, let uh, some of our underwater resources. Uh, uh, some disappear and some decline. We don't have the ability to detect quite as well as we did back uh, uh, during the Reagan administration. But that that can be reestablished. And uh, 
you get 90% of the payoff in deterrence uh, just by declaring the the strategy and the the resources to back it up and putting the the funding behind it, which so far has been done. And uh, uh, it's clear we will once again be in a position to deter uh, certainly the Russians and certainly the Chinese Navy and uh, and uh, the other troublemakers like North Korea and Iran. So there's a, a theme that runs through your book uh, that that is uh, you know very much focused on the deterrence and diplomatic power of uh, of naval power. That, that that naval power is a basis uh, for diplomacy. It's a basis uh, to get your adversary to uh, the, the talking table. Um, and and you know that comes out very clearly as you put the as you applied pressure uh, to the Soviet Union during the during the 1980s. Um, I'm curious, um, uh, what kinds of lessons do you draw from having that strategy and applying that pressure to the Soviet threat uh, to today's environment? You know, we're back to great power competition. Secretary Mattis talks about it all the time. It's even in the national uh, security and national defense strategies right now. Uh, what kinds of, uh, you know, what kind of a strategy do you think would help, um, you know, push the Chinese towards uh, behaving in line or in concert with uh, the current international norms? Well, that's, that's really a very good good and relevant uh, question. You know, my old boss, Henry Kissinger, always used to say that diplomatic power is the shadow cast by naval power. And uh, and that's what we have to reestablish, uh, the, the, the clear shadow that we uh, have a clear strategy and declare what that strategy is, what we will tolerate and what we will not tolerate, and that we have the power to back it up. And uh, right now, uh, we're beginning to, to uh, reestablish the understanding of that we do have a strategy, and, uh, and we uh, do have a program to increase the budgets and the discipline of procurement so that we can produce the power to back it up, which is to, to uh, make it clear that uh, whether it's uh, China, uh, the Chinese uh, government or the Russian government or any of the other troublemakers, if they seek to use military power against our vital interests, they will suffer far more they can, than they can ever hope to gain. That's all the deterrence is. It's a simple concept. And we've lost that because we have continued uh, to disarm unilaterally and reduce our Navy steadily until uh, really the last few years. And uh, and so we've got to rebuild it so that it can reestablish that shadow that allows diplomacy to work. And uh, it's doable without going back to the, we don't need a 600-ship Navy to do that. And we don't need to, to bust the budget by huge amounts, the kind of increases that, that uh, uh, the president has uh, uh, sent to Congress and which Congress has passed on a, a bilateral, you know, a, a, a multilateral basis. This is a bipartisan uh, move by Congress, uh, Republicans and Democrats. There were only, I think, three dissenting votes in the Senate Armed Services Committee 
uh, of these uh, significant increases. So uh, I, I'm pretty optimistic, but we can't stop after the first year. And that, that is, you know, the, 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 the uh, Navy has to keep talking about what it is able to do and what these increases are doing right now to rebuild deterrence. Uh, and, uh, and the administration has to continue to fight for the, the budget increases that, uh, that were passed uh, uh, this year because it, it, it can't be just one and done. We have to continue uh, to keep that growth going so that uh, that it is real power and not just a flash in the pan. Uh, then I think we will clearly be able to deter China. Uh, I don't think China uh, seeks to uh, annex uh, Hawaii or uh, California, although maybe might, we might think about that. But uh, it's, uh, uh, it, it, it's not inherently... Uh, uh, a, an existential threat the way the Soviet Union was. And certainly Russia is not, although Russia has clear objectives in perhaps uh, uh, reestablishing the near abroad in, in the Baltic and uh, uh, Moldavia and, and, and their, uh, their, buffer sta- their buffer states that they used to have in the Soviet Union. Sir, threaded throughout your book are wonderful mentions of proceedings in the Naval Institute starting uh, page 87 you mentioned as 1981 ended the Naval Institute's proceedings and other professional journals published commentaries by participants from U.S. and allied navies pointing out mistakes made tactical shortcomings and some successes by the Soviets against the exercise defenses Uh, and then we're going to frame this quote unlike some other services the Navy has strongly encouraged critical commentary by serving officers since the founding of proceedings in 1874. Uh, and, and then later in the book, you, you mentioned that Admiral Chernovin of the, the Soviet Navy uh, did an interview that was published uh, later on in the, in the Cold War, where he specifically talked about the U.S. strategy and how offensive he saw it and, and the impact that it, that it clearly had on him. Um, I'm just curious, you know, your take as, as Secretary of the Navy um, – did you have a positive relationship with proceedings during the whole time, or were there things that were published in proceedings that you sort of went ouch, uh, and 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 other things that you said, geez, I'm I'm really glad that, to have this open forum. Just just talk about that a little bit. <laughs> yeah, you put your finger on a neuralgic point. Uh, I used to get pretty pissed off about <laughs> some of the things the the institute uh, uh, published in proceedings. But uh, now, you know, I see in retrospect, it was the right, right thing to do. Um, and, uh, uh, of course, uh, it, it's uh, when you're trying to sell a program against uh, critics in Congress, uh, and there were some pretty uh, active critics trying to cut our budget, and especially on aircraft carriers and F-14s and submarines, um, it, it was it was frustrating to me to see being thrown back at me in, in testimony uh, quotes from articles in the proceedings. But you know that that is a great strength, and 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 uh, uh, long uh, should it last. Uh, it's it's uh, it's been a I think a hallmark of uh, proceedings that uh, they have. Uh, 
they have really very, uh, throughout their history, uh, walked the line uh, that could upset the admirals and yet uh, not uh, really uh, undermine the, the overall strategy of, uh, of the Navy. So it, it's, it's a unique. I don't know of any other professional uh, uh, journal of any kind that has been so successful in keeping uh, uh, keeping a, a an open dialogue uh, within the naval service and from outside, uh, it, it, it always challenging the accepted wisdom. And uh, uh, so, uh, uh, I hope that 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 continues, uh, uh, and I'm sure it will, because it now has such tradition behind it that. That trying to manipulate the editorial policy would be uh, uh, almost impossible to do. Well, it doesn't keep the the current administration from trying, of course. But that's the healthy tension that uh, that we want, right? I mean, you you framed it perfectly there. Um, on page ninety one, there's a cool picture of you and Tom Cruise. Um, and I knew I knew Ward was going to ask this question. <laughs> so Top Gun Two is looming. I, uh, a, lot of, a lot of people have a lot of trouble uh, telling uh, who is who. Yeah, uh, which, I know, right? <laughs> I, no doubt. Um, so just to tell us a little sea story about the early days of of greenlighting that idea, um, and and uh, how that all played out. Well, uh, during. Uh, during the Carter administration, the Navy was not allowed to cooperate with Hollywood, at least in the uh, latter years of the Carter administration. And I don't know whose policy it was, but, uh, for instance, Officer and the Gentleman, which was a great movie, very good, very pro-Navy, but uh, the Navy refused to cooperate because uh, the, the in the script there were lots of uh, four-letter words and even a few F-bombs, and uh, uh, it actually showed... Uh, and some sex. Uh, yes. Oh, geez. Uh, it, we don't it, like F-bombs and uh, sex in the Navy. No, no, there was, there was never any of that. So, <laughs> so uh, when it was uh, uh, proposed, <laughs> the, uh, Jerry Bruckheimer, uh, who is one of the great historic producers... And Don Simpson, who was his partner at the time, um, uh, came to. They were afraid to approach the Navy, so uh, they they hired uh, some naval persons, the naval aviators, uh, to uh, invite me to dinner, Barbara and me, and uh, and so we had a, a private dinner party and with. Uh, both Don Simpson and uh, and Jerry Bruckheimer and and uh, Tom Cruise, and they seated Tom next to my wife Barbara uh, in a very uh, uh, strategic move, <laughs> and uh, uh, there was certainly uh, after that no question that we were going to support uh, uh, the movie. But actually, it, it was. Uh, it was such a good concept and such a good movie that there was never any doubt in my mind that we were going to help them. And so we did, and we gave them access to carriers out on the West Coast. They paid us uh, a significant amount of money to uh, modify a couple of F-14s with the 
with the cameras, and uh, uh, we charged them a, a very nice profit uh, uh, for, for flight hours used in uh, the F-14s uh, in the filming. And uh, so it was actually a profit-making enterprise for the Navy. Um, but uh, uh, they, in return, playing hard to get, we said we had to have the right to uh, modify the script if we found things that were offensive to the Navy. Well, they very reluctantly agreed to that, and uh, uh, and we never changed the word because it was uh, it was so uh, so accurate in portraying the the spirit, the culture of naval aviation, and uh, uh, so we we supported it fully and. Uh, uh, and the policy, uh, obviously, with President Reagan being a Hollywood person, uh, he encouraged the Pentagon to cooperate with Hollywood, and it uh, it, it served uh, uh, very well. We were never really uh, uh, stabbed in the back uh, in any of the, the movies that were made during that period. Well, you also mentioned in the book that naval aviation was oversubscribed for years following that so you you know i think axiomatic to that would be we got the best of the uh the, the litter there for for years following that oh uh, yeah we sure did it uh it, it really resonated much to the chagrin of some of the other services but uh we had a three-year backlog at one point of qualified uh uh, uh aviator candidates who uh who signed up Sir, in your acknowledgments, you give uh, credit to Captain Peter Swartz, uh, and you say uh, that Peter was a strict disciplinarian, chastising me and forbidding me to write anything that could not be backed by hard evidence. And so uh, I want you to come back for a minute, because the, the subtitle of your book is called Winning the Cold War at Sea, and you, you essentially say that this, this strategy, uh, the maritime strategy, uh, that was put in place, the 600-ship Navy, 15 carriers, and then pushing that force regularly forward on the Soviet periphery and the impact it had on their defense planning and budgeting, uh, that, that helped break the, the Soviet Union. And, and there's some, some interesting quotes uh, about uh, Marshal Akramayev uh, and others from the Soviet Union and some trips that you made after the Cold War was over, after you know, post nineteen ninety one. So, talk a little bit about that, about what you heard when this was all said and done, and you met with Soviet senior Soviet folks in then Russia in the early to mid nineteen nineties, and what what they told you about how they um, how the the maritime strategy impacted them uh, and the impact it had on their morale and on their their defense planning. Well, uh, that's a very good, uh, very good issue because uh, the the uh, the hardest part of of writing this book uh, was to get some of the most critical information declassified uh, because uh, uh, we all know the problems of overclassification in the in uh, the Pentagon generally, uh, but. Uh, uh, it was essential to tell the story. It's uh, you know, it's it's easy to say, oh, we we won, the Navy won it, uh, and and that would be expected from the Secretary of the Navy. But uh, we had to prove it, and of course, Peter was one of the 
one of the architects, one of our, he was on my staff, uh, the, and he was on Ace Lyons' staff before that, uh, in uh, helping to forge the detail of the strategy and to see that it was uh, not just uh, a, a theory, but it could be put into practice. And so he was, uh, he was just essential in putting the book together because, and I had some terrible disagreements with him because I said, Peter, I was in the damn meeting and this is exactly what happened. He said, I don't care. You can't put it in unless you can get the document that backs it up. So, so that's why it, it was a, it was a difficult balance to strike. I, 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 I think we kind of achieved the right, balance because you don't want to spoil a great story uh, with a lot of footnotes. But yet, in this case, since it goes so much against the received wisdom of the media and academia that Ronald Reagan had nothing to do with winning the Cold War, it was all Gorbachev, and, and anyway, the Soviet Union would have collapsed in, in, in any case, uh, so that we did have to prove what we we said, and especially in the impact internally in Soviet uh, strategic thinking and decision-making. And you have to remember that at the time, uh, as you know from books uh, uh, like Blind Man's Bluff, uh, we were reading their mail. We were reading their most top-secret uh, uh, communications uh, uh, within and among their commands and their general staff. And so we knew what they were thinking. We knew what they were doing, trying to to react to this strategy and uh, this implementation. Uh, and and so uh, we knew where to go to get the uh, to get the proof. Uh, and but uh, in in that uh, you mentioned uh uh, uh, the conversations we had afterwards with uh, some of the Soviet high command. And there was one in particular in Bodo, Norway, uh, that the Norwegian government organized. It was about 10 years ago, I guess, but during a period when we had very good relations and exchanges with uh, our former adversaries. And uh, uh, and we were told that, that uh, there were three uh, four-star level uh, counterparts to us. Uh, when I say us, it was uh, Sweet P. Allen, who uh, was who was the command of the battle group uh, when we went into the fjords, and uh, uh, and uh, uh, the Marine general who. Because I I don't talk much about the Marines, they were an essential part of this. We we had uh, Marine amphibious operations all over Norway and in, into the Baltic to show that we could really put forces where they they had no ability to stop us. And, uh, uh, and so uh, they, uh, the Norwegian government invited the Russian counterparts and basically they told us that in, in none of the operate of the exercises we had up in the Norwegian sea and uh, in the North Pacific, were they ever able to keep, uh, a, a viable force uh, against us longer than a week, and that they this culminated in '86 after we put the carrier in in the fjords. Or '85 was the first time, and then '86 when we really operated up there um, in in the fjords. That they uh, 
sent a demarche to the Politburo saying that uh, we must treble the the budgets of the Northern Fleet and the Northern Air Force. Otherwise, uh, we can't defend the homeland for more than a week. Well, this hit like a, an explosion in the Politburo, and it was just what Gorbachev was looking for because he was struggling with the fact that they were already, they were spending 40 to 45% of their GDP on the military, and uh, far from being able to treble any part of it, uh, they had to cut it. And so uh, this gave him the leverage he needed to actually cut the budgets and force a change in the in the naval their naval strategy to pull back. That was, you know, was during this period that uh, their great naval leader, Admiral Gorshkov, who was uh, for 30-some years the, the uh, architect of their naval strategy to a, a, a achieve naval superiority, uh, he was put out the pasture, and, uh, uh, and a lot of the key leadership uh, were uh, really very unhappy with Gorbachev, and with his policies, and that led to an attempted um, coup d'etat. And uh, that uh, was able to be defeated uh, uh, without fighting, but it was a, they, they were able to, to arrest and, uh, and to purge the Soviet military from those who did not support Gorbachev's uh, uh, perestroika uh, and uh, his uh, willingness to negotiate with Reagan, so that really uh, that that just along with an awful lot of other evidence that, as you can find in the end notes, that the Soviets uh, the impact of the forward strategy and the fact that we could do it year after year and they could not stop us. Uh, it, it was a major, major factor in ending the war the way Reagan said uh, it would end. Uh, we win, they lose. The book is Oceans Ventured, Winning the Cold War at Sea. The author is the Honorable John Lim. And Mr. Secretary, on behalf of the Naval Institute membership, thank you for a lifetime of service, and thank you for coming by the Proceedings Podcast today. Well, thank you, and I will be a faithful uh, uh, subscriber to the podcast uh, from now on. Available on iTunes. Thank you very much, sir. It was great, great talking to you. What a, a ter terrific book and just a really good conversation. We appreciate your time. Well, thank you. It's uh, great to be with you. All right, that's it. That wraps up uh, episode 47 of the Proceedings Podcast. And remember, victory begins at the U.S. Naval Institute. Have a great week.